Good afternoon, everybody. So we're on our final uh, afternoon reflection for the retreat on the fourth foundation of mindfulness. The fourth foundation of mindfulness, as Andrea spoke about, is uh, often just understood as a series of lists. And uh, I thought she did such a beautiful job of weaving the parts together, uh, pulling out and weaving together some threads of that teaching in a way that felt so useful as meditation instruction. Noticing presence and absence, noticing the hindrances and the seven factors, So I have uh, a variety of things that I wanted to say, and I have a whole bunch of notes, but I find myself feeling really moved by both uh, a question that was typed in to the, uh, the teacher question file, and also really by the group that I met with this afternoon. And the piece that um, comes to me is that we're offering all of these different instructions, which are pointing or pointing towards something, or inviting you to pay attention to uh, particular aspects of your experience, to the intimacy and immediacy of the breath and body as a way to help support a kind of stabilizing, becoming present, arriving, landing here. And then we've been pointing toward both the feeling tone of our experience and what we call both mind states and states of mind. <laughs> so the whole plethora of stuff that gets kicked up our thoughts, our feelings, our memories, our wishes, our, what we've been talking about is this kind of atmosphere or perfume, the flavor of the heart and mind as we sit. And as we've gone, there's been kind of an opportunity to pay attention to, in some way, more and more subtle aspects of our experience. And what, I've, what I really wanted to say, there's a phrase in the Zen tradition, which is about um, not mistaking the finger pointing to the moon for the moon. And in uh, Japanese culture, and in the Zen tradition in particular, the moon is a symbol of awakening. And so all of what we've been offering you are instructions that are pointing you towards something. The image and the metaphor of pointing toward the moon is a little bit misleading because, of course, this is where we're pointing, always. And it is in the language that we've been speaking about 
perhaps one of the most fundamental delusions that we have is that there's something to get out there. <laughs> or we can translate that in, in a meditative and a more spiritual vein as there's someone to become over here. And while all of you probably know from your own experience that meditative practices, meditative practice can be enormously transformative. And as long as we have this orientation, this wanting to get somewhere, to become someone, we are uh, a step away. We have, a, we have an experience of being disjointed in a way. We're always leaning in or looking for, or on the flip side, resisting or pushing away. That we aren't able to fully really relax into our experience. And it's so simple to say and so hard to do, this invitation to be right here, to really understand that everything that we want, this is the doorway. And that's especially difficult when what's here is, you know, <laughs> particularly unpleasant or difficult or frustrating or disappointing, whatever flavor it may be. So someone asked this question in the typed in that said that she felt that her life often feels incomplete. And why is that? So I'm hoping that this description that, this, uh, that I'm laying out here can be a kind of pointing, a place to look for why it is. This is, in Buddhist language, we call the wheel of samsara, this constant trying to get somewhere, trying to be someone. And the thing that struck me in both the question and also in the group, actually in all of the groups that I've been uh, part of, is something like, well, two things. One is that it's very hard sometimes for us to see our own beauty. It's hard for us to see that our sincerity, our courage, our effort, our persistence, our tenderness, our insight, because of this, like, it's, there's more. I've got to get to the next one, or it's not deep enough, or it's not good enough. There's, there's a kind of perpetuating of that. And so it's often the case that we, we miss, we miss, this. And even when our experience is really difficult, whether there's physical pain or mental pain or emotional pain, intense or subtle, we get locked on to what we would call in the object, the thing we're aware of. And what we're missing is that as we're meeting that experience, there's this tremendous um, 
Well, all of the things I said, beauty, courage, persistence, tenderness. It takes a lot to be willing to sit for an hour, not to mention multiple days, with one's own difficulty. And in some ways, the the understanding of what it means to wake up, to experience a sense of freedom, of peace, is not about having a particular kind of experience. It's about this shift in our perspective. It's about coming to be with our experience in a different way. So the other thing that struck me in the group today was that there was a very poignant uh, description in a number of people of a kind of a longing. And I think it's useful to distinguish between a kind of grasping and a really deep and pure longing that can rise up in us. And sometimes that sense of our life feeling incomplete, if we're able to stay with that unpleasantness, what we find is this kind of longing. There's a longing to be real. There's a longing to be free. This is beautiful. So I sometimes think of the, uh, there's a fire engine going by outside. I sometimes think of this fourth foundation as a description of not just a something to pay attention to, but as a description of patterns of experience, kind of the dynamic interplay of, you know, as Andrea wove it so beautifully this morning, as an example, the interplay between what's present and what's absence, the interplay between the five hindrances and the seven factors, we begin to see that there is not just individual moments of experience, there's not just thing, 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 that there's an aliveness, that there's a connectivity, that there's a wholeness in our experience. We begin to see the stuff that connects. We begin to see how the pieces cohere to create a whole. We begin to see that when I engage in this way, there's more suffering. And when I engage or respond in a different way, there's less suffering. And if we're in the mind of judgment, if we're in the mind that's trying to get somewhere, <laughs> you know, get the gold star or get the good grade, then every time we have some act something we do or feel or respond 
to our experience in some way that causes more something you know, bad. <laughs> but that's not anywhere in the Satipatthana Sutta. The Satipatthana Sutta is very clear about being aware of what's happening. And when there's suffering in the mind, then we know there's suffering in the mind. And when there's no suffering in the mind, then we know there's no suffering in the mind. So we're looking to see both those moments of experience, but also to see the interplay. In a certain way, it's a little bit hard to talk about because it's, it's sort of the stuff in between, you know? I talked earlier about we have awareness, we have the object of awareness, and we have the relationship too. That's the thing in between. It's not really a thing. <laughs> but that's the whole point. That's what we're coming to see. That everything actually is alive, is dynamic changing. So some of the patterns that we see as we begin to sit and settle are sort of personal patterns. We can see some of the ways our own mind and heart have been conditioned and patterned. We can see how it is that we cause ourselves more suffering by some of the things that ways in which we react or respond, and we can see ways in which we can undo that. So we come to be, be more intimate with our own, we might call it our internal dynamics, our internal dynamism. Maybe we notice that we have a lot of irritation when we're sitting. This example is mine, <laughs> so I'll claim it. So I notice I'm having a lot of irritation when I'm sitting. It's one of the things that places my mind goes easily. And I've learned over time, a lot of years, a lot of hours, a lot of months of sitting, that if I stay with that irritation, if I can be with it in the way that we've been talking about, then it begins to soften and open and very often in my case, under the irritation, there is something like sadness or disappointment. And if I can stay with the sadness, with the disappointment, sometimes that means tears, sometimes not, sometimes it lasts a long time, sometimes it's fleeting. But if I can be with that, the whole process of it, then very often if I allow the sadness, the, the disappointment, then there's a softening, then there's a tenderness, and there's a kind of compassion that arises. That's just an, a simple-ish example of how we can begin to see our own version, or you can begin to see your own version of this personal patterning. But there's also, and Andrea mentioned this yesterday, there's a kind of a universal patterning, which in Buddhist language is referred to sometimes as the three characteristics. 
So it's sometimes translated as the three stamps or marks of reality. We begin to see not just our personal truth, but a more universal truth of how things are. And seeing things as they are, or as the Zen teacher Suzuki Roshi used to say, seeing things as it is. <laughs> when we begin to really learn, when we develop enough stability to really be with our experience, then, and to really see things as they are, or things as it is, we begin to see that human experience has a kind of, um, it's like its own, what are we calling it, a scent, an aroma. There's a way in which a reality itself for us as human beings it has a, a flavoring. And the three characteristics, as many of you probably know, are anicca, dukkha, and anatta. That, that our experience, dukkha, is unreliable. That if we try to hold on to anything, it's the great image from Joseph Goldstein that I love, that when we try to hold our experience, we get rope burn. And this is because at the center of our real life, of beginning to see this dynamism, this not static thing, 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 thing. When we begin to see that, we see that there is a fluidity, there's a liveness, there is an impermanence. Things are changing, arising and passing all the time. So that's the second mark. Dukkha is the first, anicca, and the third is anatta. That there is, well, I'll say it this way, one of the things <laughs> that is fluid and changing is me. That this idea that there is a solid, separate, unchanging thing called I, me, and mine, when we look closely, we begin to say, nope. And we don't have to try to think our way into they're not being a self. <laughs> we just want to pay attention to our experience. And then we begin to see for ourselves, it's not that there's nothing here. We know that. There's a lot here. It's just that what's here is fluid. It's dynamic. It's changing. It's not... We can't hold on. And when we try to hold on, we get rope burn. When I was first uh, practicing in the insight tradition, I remember uh, reading in the Pali Canon this phrase, uh, a spotless, immaculate vision of the Dharma arose in him or her or them. I'll say them. A spotless, immaculate vision of the Dharma arose in them. And this is a lead up to a description of awakening. So pay attention. <laughs> a spotless, immaculate vision of the Dharma arose in them. I remember reading and thinking, yeah, what is it? And then it says, everything that is subject to arising 
is subject to passing away. That's it, folks. When we really understand the truth of impermanence in ourselves, in others, in the dynamism of our life, it frees us. It wakes us up. It takes us out of our slumber of meing and youing and ussing and theming and creating these lines of separation. We're actually able to enter into this dynamism. This is in the teaching of um, Atika Samupada. This is in some ways really, that's the technical description of this dynamic wheel of being. There aren't things. There's just life. So I remembered this uh, little uh, opening. It's the opening line of a story. Some of you who have been around me for a while may have heard this before. This is from uh, Ben Okri, who's a Nigerian writer whose book called The Hungry River won, I can't remember which prize. There's this beautiful opening line in his book. And he says, in the beginning, there was a river. And then the river was paved over and became a road. But because the road was really a river, it was always hungry. So that hunger, that wanting, is most of us feel that, and then we uh, look for love in all the wrong places. We try to fill that hunger with things. We try to fill that hunger with, you know, doing more and being more, becoming more, buying more, meditating more. <laughs> And that's okay, but mostly that just keeps us very busy. And what's offered here is something different. What's offered here is really an invitation to keep feeling into that sense of incompleteness, that sense of dissatisfaction, that sense of longing that may arise in us, and to understand that that is pointing us to, you know, it's one of the beautiful things in, uh, for me in Buddhist teaching, that our suffering isn't described as it is in the Judeo-Christian tradition of being a result of evil, but of ignorance. That because we don't see things clearly, because we don't see things as it is, we suffer, and in many cases we cause suffering. So for me, this beautiful, uh, you know, it's metaphorical, this hungry river quote, is that we have this aliveness, this dynamism that is the truth of who we are, this river-like nature, and then 
our own thinking process and the conditioning process, the families we grow up in, the cultures we grow up in, all of that conditions us to, oh, I like to say it is, we kind of freeze frame our experience. <laughs> we take this flowing river and we turn it into a bunch of ice cubes. And then we're stuck in our little ice cube tray with you know, very clear names and words and explanations for things. And then we say, ouch, my heart, it hurts. I feel lonely, I feel, what was the language? I feel incomplete, I feel longing, yes. Because we're not meant to be ice cubes. We're not meant to be frozen. But the, the punchline, which is maybe an obvious one here, is that we don't, we don't just try to spruce up our little ice cube compartment. You know, we actually have to feel how uncomfortable it is. We have to feel that it's cold and it's rigid and it's tight. It has sharp edges. That part's hard. And so we come together in this way. We support one another. We offer these teachings. We invite you to do this radical shift in understanding that when you feel that pain, it's not because there's something wrong. It's because, you know, you're beginning to thaw. You know how it is when you have a part of the body that you sit on or something and it falls asleep? and then it's really uncomfortable as it starts to wake up. It's kind of like that. So what I see, what I hear being with all of you is this you know, beautiful process of thawing, of melting that's happening. And sometimes I think from your side, it's hard to see it because, you know, either, uh, scary because even if we don't like our little ice cube tray it's familiar <laughs> we know our way around it's painful but it's pain we know and as things start to melt and open and shift sometimes sometimes uh, we get disoriented sometimes we get afraid sometimes we get really happy it, it changes like everything else yeah. And so we find our way like this together. I think we have trouble, many of us, with impermanence. I mean, when things are really shitty, you know, or painful, it can be helpful to remember, oh yeah, this isn't going to last. But in a more general way, I think many of us, especially we don't like the, the passing part. Because that, that letting go, the loss that is part of our life is hard. It touches us 
but it also has the opportunity as we find our way to be with it, to really allow the fullness of this melting to move into the dynamism of our aliveness, of this <laughs> shifting from being ice cubes to being this river. That there's just tremendous beauty in that, even if it's hard. So I'm going to close with, I found this in a folder. Let's see if I can find it again. This is a bit of a story from uh, Dainin Katagiri Roshi, who uh, was a Zen teacher who, uh, his name means great patience. And he himself uh, died fairly early of uh, cancer and was in a lot of pain in, his, in the end of his life. And he was very... Um, it's the right word, emphatic about this teaching of impermanence. So here's a little uh, piece from him. He said, sometimes at a restaurant or at the bank, you can see beautiful flowers. And often, they're not real flowers. They are plastic. People like plastic flowers very much because they don't die. They don't change. Right? Plastic flowers are cheap and economical, and if we buy only one bunch, that is enough for our whole life. But even though we try to make plastic flowers exactly the same as living flowers, we can never see the real beauty that we see in a living flower. A living flower is beautiful because it is fading away. The same applies to our life. We are going to the grave. We are fading away. That is why we can really live. So when we allow ourselves to not just see or hear cognitively this truth of impermanence, but to really allow it to transform us, then we can really live. We can have the fullness, the aliveness of our life. We can become unfrozen. I've said this to a number of you, but you know, I understand it's easy to say what I'm saying and it's not so easy to do. But this is an opportunity that we have together to practice in this way. Because as we turn and see this particular pattern of reality, the truth of impermanence, the truth of the arising and passing away, of all experience, we have a chance to really live. And we have a chance to both see in ourselves and in others and to be beautiful 
beautiful and this very poignant mm, heart opening kind of way. <laughs> 